at the four great vows, which are four vows that we recite very often in the Zen tradition. And so in Korea, whenever there would be any ceremony of any kind, we would recite these four vows. They're really one of the basis of the practice. And so that, they are the four vows. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Compulsions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. And so the first one, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And I think what is very important to see with these vows is that they are not expectation. I think we have to see the difference like when we are on retreat, but also when we are in our daily life, the difference between aspiration and expectation. Because if you aspire, I mean, this to me, these vows are about setting an intention, setting an aspiration, but not, see the difference how it feels when, you know, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And that generally gives us energy, opens us up to do something about it, but not something exactly precise, maybe not something exactly specific, but it gives us an intention, it gives us energy to see others, to see the world, to respond to the world in a creatively compassionate way. But if we have expectation, then if we take this as an expectation, then tomorrow morning, you know, I must save three today. Uh, Sunday, well, you know, two and a half, you know. And, and then it's like kind of like um, you take the thing literally and then there starts to be this tension. You know, I must do this. I must do this this way. I am not doing enough, or I'm doing it the wrong way. And so I think to see, to me what is interesting about this, um, this vow, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Well, the first thing which is interesting is that we are one of them. We are one of these numberless sentient beings. So this, not, this is not just about other people is about me and other people. So that, in a way, we also try to save ourselves at the same time as we're trying to save others. So the others and us, we are not separate. We are all human beings. And But I think the spirit of the vow is trying to make us look beyond just me and mine. Because generally, you know, we want to be nice and we love and we want to help. Generally, people we like, people we feel comfortable with, you know, little bunny rabbits or, you know, <coughs> as long as they don't uh, eat the flowers and then it changes. 
So it's kind of like trying to go beyond me and mine, what I like, what I feel comfortable with, but to really open up to a whole sentient being. And in a way, it is not easy to have compassion for people who are difficult. But I think this can make us question that, you know, sometimes it's not easy to go and meet somebody and to spend some time with them. They might be cantankerous, they might be difficult. But then how often do you meet them? You might just meet them 30 minutes once a week. But they live with themselves the whole time. That is difficult. And maybe being just 30 minutes is not that difficult compared to the other. So in a way to see, I think this is very much about trying to open to the world as much as we can. So to see that the meditation is not just about, in a way, improving ourselves, but is actually, in a way, dissolving the self-centeredness so that there can be a middle way between taking care of oneself and taking care of others. So that instead of being you know, very slanted toward I, me, mine, it becomes more like in the middle. But yes, I have to take care of myself, but also I have to be aware of others. I have to see others. And I think this is a big part of the practice. And what is in this vow is that I, I see others where they are. Not where I want them to be, but where they are at. And that's why I would often nearly change the word save to serve. Because in saving, there is this idea, I am going to save them. Even if they don't want it, I am going to save them. When I think, if we think more of serving others, as Gabriel Marcel, a French philosopher, used to say, if I am disp disponible, if I am available to others. And I think that's what this is about, this farm. He's saying, I am making myself available to others. I am opening to others and being aware of themselves for themselves. And that's where I see the listening really coming in. The listening meditation, I feel, is one of the key to this vow. So that, in a way, you listen. You see others and you listen to them. And then you can see what are their needs. And then you can see what is your limitation. Because there is a two aspect with compassion. That somebody might ask something from you. But can you give it? This is something that at, when I was in Korea as a nun, a foreign nun, would often happen. That because we were very few of us then in the 70s, we, I would appear in magazine or I would appear on short segment on TV or whatever it was. And whenever something like this happened, I could guarantee that I would get a letter from some young person in Korea asking me for money. Because they thought, because I was a foreigner, I must have money. And because they were poor, could I give them some? And 
Generally, I send them about $5 or £5 because that's all I had. And I had to say, I'm sorry, but I am not rich. I am not. And, and so, in a way, I would have loved to give them lots of money, but I did not have any to give them then. Nowadays, it's different. If uh, people ask me for money, then I can see, yeah. You know, I can help nuns in India, I can help people in Madagascar, in many different places. But we have to see what is a need, and can I help it or not? I think this is also part of what I would call creative, wise compassion. But I think with this vow, in a way there is, a, you could nearly say, the enormity of it. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And there, I think, what is very essential for creative wise compassion is equanimity. Because, yes, we can feel compassionate, but compassion is very close as a feeling. It's very close to sadness. And so... When we feel compassion, we basically feeling compassion for the suffering of others. And generally being with suffering is sad. Generally it's not fun. It's painful. And so generally being with suffering often makes us sad. And then there is kind of this sadness within us which can be activated and can be very difficult to deal with. And I think that's why it's very important with this vow, to see that part of the meditation practice is to cultivate equanimity. And equanimity is not indifference. Often there is this idea of equanimity that if I practice enough, one day I will float so high that nothing will bother me. Nothing whatsoever. But who would want to be like that? Who would want to be above it all? Not connected to the suffering of others, to the suffering of oneself. And so the equanimity is not that. It's not moving away what, from what's going on. But actually it's developing. That's what we do during a retreat and also at home where we practice daily is to develop the stability and the balance. Equanimity is about stability and balance. So that when we are with suffering, in a way we can handle it. We are not destabilized by the suffering. We can feel the sadness, we can feel the pain, but we're not overwhelmed. And also it does not, in a way, proliferate into ancient pain, which then can make things rather complicated instead of being really with the suffering of that person right now. So we need to see how important the equanimity so that we can meet the suffering with balance, we can meet the suffering with stability. So that there is, again, we can have difficult feeling, but we can, in a way, have spaciousness and calm around that. Many years ago, we were uh, asked to help in South Africa 
And when I met that family, I felt terrible. I really felt so bad. Because at that moment, I could really feel, in a way, the hopelessness of that family. We had no way to have any support, any money, nothing. They had nothing to support them. So at one level, we could say they were hopeless. And they looked so, in a way. And at the same time, I could be aware that there were so many other families like that in the world who were in a similar situation. And so I felt very sad. And of course, I knew I could help this family. And they got much better relatively fast, actually, with, not, with just us supporting them. But what was interesting was to see for the next two weeks, the sadness was still there. Just the sadness of that knowledge that there are so many people in a similar situation. But the sadness did not overwhelm me. I taught the retreat, I met people. I was just aware of it. I was aware that is what it means, as Stephen talked again and again, embracing suffering. It's sad. And so in order to embrace suffering, we need equanimity. We need balance. We need stability. And in a way, when we cultivate the practice in daily life, it's very much to cultivate that, to try to bring a little of that deep calm, a little of that clear awareness in our life. And then you have uh, the next one, compulsions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. So this is like, you know, a big program, you know. And what I think, to me, is the way I would look at it. Of course you could be disheartened before you even start. I mean, they're inexhaustible. What can I do about it? You know, impossible. But I think it's more pointing out that we're actually multifaceted. We are multi-perspectival. We have many aspects. And so to me, I, saw, I see this more as a challenge and as an exploration. That in a way, as I said, the compulsion are awakening. So in a way, working with our habits, working with our pattern, working with what is difficult, is really working with awakening trying to understand what is going on. So not feeling total, totally, in a way, slave to them. And to me, this is a key to the practice, is to see we are not always like that. They're not always happening. So then, of course, there is opportunity to see how does it feel when I am in caught in a habit, caught in a compulsion. How does it feel when I'm free from that? And it's not saying I want to be free all the time, because we cannot be free all the time. But to, in a way, this is very much about knowing, knowing the compulsion, knowing the pattern, knowing the negativity. And equally, and I think this is vital. And that's why the creative awareness can make us as aware of our good quality 
than our difficult quality. So in a way, if we want to get involved with our compulsions, we at the same time need to get involved with our good qualities because we have got both. So in a way, it's kind of to see how they are, how they come about. And then, I think there with the compulsions, to see that generally we try to work with them when they're intense. But when they're intense, it's too late. You see, I think this is a thing we have to see. That, yes, I mean, generally we work with them then because they're so obvious that then we can't do anything about it. It's like, you know, they're in our face. But this seems to be not to be, you know, kind of the best way to go about it. I mean, generally, if we have, uh, let's say, a headache, Generally, we don't wait for the headache to be the worst it can be before we take a painkiller. But we have to learn that. And I used to have sciatica. And then finally, one day, I had it for two months. It was really, 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 really bad. I could not even sit on a chair. For two months, it was really, really bad. And after that, I learned... This is not a good idea to wait for it to be like that. Because it takes so long to, in a way, get it better. So now, as soon as I have a little something, I do something about it. I don't wait thinking, it's okay, it will pass, yes, yes, it's okay, never mind. No, 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 no. I, you know, generally, I go to the osteopath, or I take a painkiller, or I do something. I go to the pilate, whatever. But So I think we have to see that with compulsion. If we wait for them to be intense, to do something about it, it's a bit late. And so in a way, that's why something is so important with the creative awareness, to see that they have light manifestation of the compulsion, habitual manifestation, and intense manifestation. And so... Not to be interested just in the intense, but to be interested in the light manner when it's very light. This is very interesting. How does it feel? You know, like, for example, anger. How does it feel, light anger? And the way you can check it out, work with it, is impatience, you know, and in the supermarket queue. It's a great place to practice. So, of course, you choose the wrong cue, and it goes slowly, and you can feel you're like that. <laughs> you kind of like physically, you're pushing the cue. Physically, you kind of, you know, trying to do some paranormal activity <laughs> on the lady, which has no effect whatsoever. <laughs> to feel that, to feel that impatience, which could quickly you know, we become full-blown anger. And instead of that, coming back to just standing there, just to meditate, great opportunity to meditate. And it's not going to make a difference. But at least you will feel better about it. So in a way, to explore that, the impatience. Or if you have a tendency to be angry, 
And then it becomes like it's kind of more the habitual feel of it. And then what happens then? You feel irritated. It's like you feel enervated. And then you look for somebody to be irritated at. You know, so you look for the likely candidate. And unfortunately, generally, your family are the closest, which is not fun for them. And so you look for something. Instead of how does it feel and what are the conditions. And a lot of the time it's because you're tired. And then it might be better to go and rest than to go and shout at somebody. So in a way, in a way to try to explore that it be with anger, with sadness, with whatever it is. Trying to see how can I start to feel in daily life when it's light, when it's habitual, when it's intense. And also to see that then you can start to work with it in a much more creative way. Instead of feeling, I am like this, that's the way it is, I can't do anything about it, I am a terrible person, I am the most terrible person in the universe. And I don't know why that feels enjoyable, weirdly. But I mean, it's only enjoyable shortly, you know. So you know, to explore that, to explore that. Personally, I think this vow is about this exploration. But I think also, it's about the training. There are the compulsions. We're not going to work with it just with the meditation. We really need the three training. The training of ethics, the training of meditation, the training of wisdom. And that's why I think the compulsion also is telling us to be careful. That we often have this kind of, we look at teachers, often with really pink, rosy glasses. They must be awakened, so they must be all perfect. Then you see them doing things which are maybe not ethical or a bit weird. And, you know, and everybody says, it's crazy wisdom or whatever, whatever. <laughs> Wait a minute. Then I think you can remember Compulsion, an inexhaustible, easy person, this teacher kind of really working on it to dissolve them all, or is just kind of stopping halfway there. So I think this is also a reminder that teachers too have also their compulsions, and that we, can, we have to be careful there. Like we have ours, they're also human beings, they have theirs. And so my test for anybody who says they're enlightened is put them in a car with a breaking down. Their mobile phone is not working, is belting down with rain in the middle of the night. And then let's see how they are. <laughs> and the next one. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. And so, in a way, the Dharma gates, this vow you could interpret in many different ways. First, you could interpret it that there is many different Buddhist traditions, there is many different Buddhist practices which have been developed over time. But personally, I think it might be more interesting to look in terms of daily life. That, in a way, when we come on a retreat, I would 
it to me it's kind of it, it's a bit like if you go on a week training course to learn to drive, intense training course, and then you go out into the world, and you have to drive not on a perfect course, but you have to drive with everybody else, you know. And uh, in England, they're very good. Anytime I am in England, I love it. You know, people stop before you even put your foot crossing the road on the zebra crossing. In France, <laughs> you never know if one of them will stop. You better not go. So it's very interesting, you know, to... So you have the, the formal, intense practice we do here. And then there is what I would call the width dimension. We go out into the world. And there are so many Dharma gates. So that in a way there are so many ways we can practice. Of course we can practice formally. Every day we can sit in meditation. But again, I think we have to be careful there. That if you decide, you know, I come back from Gaia House and I'm going to sit every day, I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning and I'll sit for two hours. And I mean, this generally lasts three days and then forget it. I would say start small, start what you can do. I mean, if you have an hour, of course you can do an hour. But if you only have 10 minutes, 10 minutes is also very good. And so there are many, we can do 10 minutes of sitting meditation, but we can also do 10 minutes of lying down meditation in bed at night. I like it when people say, I don't have the time to meditate. But I mean, you have the time to sleep. And before you go to bed, you can meditate. When you wake up, you can meditate. You already get your 10 minutes there. And then it's for you to see, is it better for me to do walking meditation? or standing meditation, or lying down meditation. So, and to see that when we do the meditation at home, it's not going to be like here. Like, you, you sit at home, sit, okay, yes, yes, the breath, the sound, what is this? <laughs> and within 30 seconds, you think of something else. Because your life, there are so many things. So you're not going to have the same calm that you developed here over the week. But still, I think it's very valuable to stop and to really remember the value of meditation, to try to be aware, to try to concentrate. But what I think is important is not to reduce the meditation just to that. That there are many, that's why there are so many Dharma gates. There are so many ways to practice informally in daily life when we cook, when we garden, when we stand in the queue. It can be just in terms of being aware. It can be in terms of just the way we are with ourselves and others. And then back to listening. To me, this is one of the great practices, one of the great Dharma gates in daily life, is how do we listen? When I have a conversation, because in a way, we are not alone in the world. We need to share the world with others. It's very important <coughs> to communicate, to have relationship with others. But how do we communicate and how do we listen? And so in a way, bringing the meditative awareness to that. And I would say the way we listen generally, you listen, 
but you're actually thinking of what you want to say, which is so much more interesting, and so you're waiting for the person to stop so you can finally say it. And then you spend the whole time trying to remember it so you don't forget it when the person stops. I don't call that listening. Then the next one is even more interesting. You look in the right direction, you're thinking of your shopping list, and they say to you, what do you think? <laughs> and you have no idea what they said. Talk about consciousness. I mean, there was no consciousness there. The ear was there, but the mindfulness was not there. Or we listen and we like, oh, no, really, we grasp at the, what the person said. Generally, that's not very helpful. And the art of meditative listening, we can do this so many times in the day. Just listening fully to the person in that moment. And being there. And then, when your time comes to speak, often you will say things which are so much wiser, so much compassionate than you would have thought. So in a way, to really remember that, one of the Dharma gates is a listening. Also to remember the breath as a way to calm ourselves, to remember the questioning as a way to bring a little brightness into the moment. But also I think not to reduce the Dharma gates to the Buddhist Dharma gates. I think it's really the Dharma gates are about flourishing, are about nurturing, are about cultivation. And so I think to see, because we are multifaceted, there are so many ways we can develop ourselves. We can develop ourselves creatively by creating something. That it be cooking, gardening, painting, poetry, whatever it is kind of creativity can be so nurturing. Or we can uh, cultivate, me one of the, the things I really uh, benefited from. When I came back from Korea, for 10 years I had not been with children, barely at all. And they were, and any I met were Korean children which are really, really, really generally well behaved, especially in the temple. So, did not have much to do with them. And then I came to, back to the West, and I didn't know what to do with the children. I thought, you know, where are they? What are they? <laughs> felt a bit weird, so I went to do a, a course of a kindergarten preschool uh, training course for six months. And it was wonderful. Set me up for life to be with children and to really... Very creative. That's what I really enjoy. The creativity, the learning to be with different group of people, different ages. And I learned so much from it, which I'm still using nowadays. Or another time I did a counseling course. And that also I found very useful. Or a computer course, whatever. I mean, when I was in England, it was easier to learn this kind of thing. But I found in a way to see the Dharma gates there can be so many of them. And so to, to not think it's just Buddhist Dharma gates. And then the last one, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. And so that doesn't mean that the Buddha's way is the highest or the Buddha's way is the only one. 
but in a way saying kind of the awakening way is unsurpassable. The awakening way is of great value. And so I vow to attain it. And so I think what it, that vow is saying in a way that I can't do this. It's saying that I have the ability, I have the creative potential, but I have to activate it. As I say in the Korean Zen tradition, you can't just sit there waiting for enlightenment to happen. We have to do something. So that in a way, I know you hear a lot about, you know, there is no goal, the goal of no goal, and things of that nature. But generally, we need to activate ourselves. We need to cultivate. And what is interesting with cultivation is that the more we cultivate, the more it flourishes. It's kind of like exponential. The more you do something, the more you're able to do it. And so I think the Buddha's way also, it might seem like, wow, this is amazing. But it had many different aspects. It doesn't mean to learn all the sutra. It doesn't mean to learn all the jhanas or whatever we think. But in a way, it's about what is the best I can be in this moment? What is my potential in this moment. Many years ago, I researched a book for women in Buddhism. And I met this nun. And I was so uh, struck by what she said. Because I asked her, what is your practice? And she, and she was a, a researcher and a professor at a Buddhist university. And she told me my practice is to be a Buddha. So when she leaves a place, a temple, her intention is to be a Buddha for the day, to try to have the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha that day. And then at the end of the day, she reviews it, how Buddha-like she had been and how sentient being-like she'd been, and then she would start again. And I think in a way that's what this vow is a little about. How can I be a Buddha today? Not the 250% Buddha, but what is the least Buddha-like I can be today and try to do that. So I would say that these vows, there is the power of intention is in a way to give us direction, but also to give us a reminder that this is important for me. This is the way I want to go. The power of recognition, I can do this. And then the power of meaning, that actually it gives value to our life. To me, this is something which is, in a way, very important as a human being. In a way, what, what is the most important? Personally, I would say, for myself, what is the most important is to cultivate wisdom and compassion, to try to cultivate the conditions so wisdom and compassion are more likely to be there. And then how I do this can have many different aspects. 
For many years, I was a house cleaner. Now I am a teacher. Now I'm taking care of my mother. There are many different aspects. But underneath it all, whatever I do, whatever role I am in, underneath, there is that. The value and compassion. So my, the worth of my identity is not in being a teacher or a writer or this or that. The worth of my life is how do I manage to keep that direction of wisdom, of compassion. So that's what I wanted to, to, to talk about today. Then we got uh, lots of notes, lots of notes this time for this Zen retreat. So there were some notes about the instructions. You noticed we were taping the instructions on, uh, on my iPad. And this is for a friend who has asked us many years to do that. So finally we did it. And so what I'm going to try to do, if I can manage, is to move the talk from my iPad to one of our computers in such a way that then I can either put it on our website or send it to Dharma Seed. But don't hold your breath. <laughs> it takes time to learn how to do this. I've not managed to put it in Dropbox yet, so. but there is hopes. Then there was a, a question about actually... Uh, being mindful of breathing, but being mindful of the pulse as an alternative to be mindful of breathing. Personally, I would not recommend it because I think the pulse or the heart are such uh, a sensitive part of ourselves. And we already see that when we become aware of the breath, we start to do the breath, and sometimes we kind of get out of breath. And so if we, personally, I would not recommend to be aware of our pulse or aware of our heart, because then you might start to interfere with it. So personally, I would not recommend it. One can always try and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> then there was a question... Uh, can you say something about the danger of routine when following the breath, for example? And how can you keep things fresh after many years? If you want to keep the being aware of the breath fresh, read the book of Larry Rosenberg, Breath by Breath. This is the best book I have ever read about keeping the breath fresh. So that's what I would recommend. Otherwise, personally, I think what is very important to see is that, in a way, the mindfulness practice is based on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, the feeling, the mental state, and then everything under the sun. So, in a way, there is nothing you cannot be mindful of, and that not being practiced, if you do it in a meditative mindfulness way. So, of course, if you like to be with the breath, you can be with the breath, but then I think 
you might want to read the Anapanasati Sutta, which kind of look at how to be with the breath, again, in many different ways. Otherwise, personally, I think there is so many practices, and the way to keep the practice fresh is to look more at what is it, is what is needed now. So I'm not so sure it's important to keep the breath fresh as the freshness of the meditation. So it's not so much the object, but the freshness of the meditation and the looking at the condition. There is a sutta, which is an agi sutta, the fire sutta, but not the famous fire sutta. But this one is about the right time and the wrong time. It's in the Pali Canon. And in it, the Buddha says that when you don't have much energy, it's not the time to focus on things which will give you even less energy, like being aware of the breath or trying to cultivate more calm. But what you need to do is actually work on the more uh, lively enlightenment factor, like questioning, investigation of the state, or effort, or joy, or things of that nature. And he said, when you actually have too much energy, it's not the moment to cultivate more energy, but actually to cultivate something which might be more calming, like being aware of the breath, equanimity, these enlightenment factors. And again and again you see the Buddha saying, be careful. If you put too much effort, you become restless. If you put too much equanimity, actually you will not be so aware of the taints. So what we find in the Buddha is not saying, just do this, but do whatever you do according to the condition and often with an idea to balance things out. And I think that's maybe where the freshness could come. Then there was a question about at the end of the retreat. So the person said they feel a little kind of open and sensitive. And then they go back to daily life and, you know, the train and London and things like that. And it's kind of a little uh, overpowering. Generally, on the Zen retreat, there is less of that effect. Because I think you have more that effect if you focus on calm. But if you focus equally on calm and experiential inquiry, I think personally there is less of that sensitiveness effect. I remember in Korea we would sit, you know, 10 hours a day for three months at a time. And then the day after we, the, finish, the retreat finished, sometimes we would go to town because we'd stayed in the monastery for three months without moving. And one time we went to see one of the uh, Harrison Ford movie, you know, and the sound was so loud. But we were fine with it. We are not overstimulated. So I think the thing first is not to attach to a state of calm, but to, I think, what you're trying to do and what we've been trying to do this week is to develop this creative awareness, this kind of interested awareness, so that you don't see the thing out there going to shatter your calm, but to see actually the how can I bring this meditative awareness? And I think what is most important is stability and openness. 
So my recommendation would be actually go to the spot where you find the stability, the belly or the feet. And if you feel a little sensitive, a little kind of overwhelmed by activity and things, I would say go to your belly, go to your feet, go to the listening, and having a listening which is open. So you're not sticking to anything specific, but just open. So things kind of, in a way, melt in that openness and not feel like they're attacking you. Then there was uh, the thing about how to maintain a healthy creative awareness, uh, considering that 30 or 60 minutes daily is quite tough for many people. And so personally, I would say what happens generally is you, if your life is not too busy, you leave a retreat, and then after a month, for a month or two, you're really good. You know, meditation every day, yes, 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 you know, and then something happens. Either you're ill, either you're busy, either you travel. And then you lose the rhythm for a week or two, time to recover, to come back or whatever. And then you don't have the same energy to sit, the same energy to, to do meditation. And then he's having the patience with that. Instead of going back to maybe what you did before, which was 30 <coughs> minutes a day, just go back to five minutes. And then, if you want to do more, slowly, slowly increase it. Because often it's like, oh, but before I sat 30 minutes every day and I was so good and now I am hopeless. And the thing is that the problem is a comparing mind. Because the conditions have changed. You need to start again slowly. Then do just a little at a time, get back slowly into the rhythm. And then, once you get enough energy, then generally, again, the motivation comes back, the energy comes back, and then again, you might have the energy to do 30 minutes a day until the next time. You travel, you're tired, and then there is going to be a little more of a low period where you do less. I think it's very important to see that that we cannot maintain all the time the same level. But again, also to see that over time, a lot of the meditation is not happening on the cushion. But a lot of the meditation actually happens either in the way you are stable, either in the way you are creative, the way you are open, or just the way you are mindful. And then you can start to see that it kind of changes a little the way you are with it. For example, with cooking. You know, I don't know how many of you might at time cook. And some people get kind of nervous with cooking. I am cooking. I must cook a good meal. I must cook the best meal in the universe. And everybody must say how good it is. You know, and then nobody says anything. <laughs> but just to do it as best as you can. And good enough. And if they say fine, fine. If not, that's fine too. They were fed, you know. <laughs> so, but the more expectation you put in, actually the less mindful you'll be because of the tension. 
But if you're just aware of what you're doing, what is it I can do within that amount of time? And just one at a time doing it, and then it's enjoyable. Otherwise, it's very tense. So to me, it's kind of more that. Playing with the diverse element. That's what I would recommend. So, are there any questions or comments? We have a few minutes. Yes. So, it may be a strange question, but one thing I, I didn't hear about a lot in this retreat is happiness. So there is a lot about suffering or equanimity or all these things, but what about happiness as a feeling or a state or a state of joy? Is that something that is present in Buddhism or is it something? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, in, um, you have, uh, in the Theravada tradition, uh, you have a practice, which is a practice of rejoicing. And that practice of rejoicing actually involves rejoicing at your happiness and also rejoicing at the happiness of others. Then you get double happiness, you know, yours and others. Also, you have the loving-kindness meditation in the Theravada tradition where it's about, again, being aware of one's happiness. So there they talk more about happiness there. In the Zen tradition, they generally don't talk about happiness as such. Okay, sit down now. Be happy. It's, it's not really the Zen style. But you see, what I found, to me, what was very interesting in Korea was to see the, the young monks or the young nuns, when they arrived, they generally were really serious. They're so serious about awakening and everything. They were really tense. And when I looked at the, the monks and the nuns who had practiced a lot, what I could see in them was a lightness. Like there was, it was not like happiness, ha, 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 <laughs> but it was lightness. The way they were, the way they walked, and generally they were very funny. They were very funny, very, very, very funny sense of humor. And so, to me, I would say happiness is so many different things. Because you can be happy just... I mean, personally, I think we should be very happy that most of the time it was sunny during this week. In England, in Devon, in April. You know, we could say, wow, that was great. Every day I thought, great, they will have a nice day today. I was happy for you that it was nice. Double happiness. And sometimes you have what, I, what we call quiet contentment. Sometimes you have joy. And I would say, the less tense you are, the more likely you will be happy. But to me, happy, I don't use the word generally, because nowadays there is this whole thing about happiness. <laughs> and to me, I prefer to use words like uh, contentment, like joy, like lightness, like humor. And so in a way, if we look at what is it, that helped me to feel light, which some people might say, this means to be happy. What is it that makes me light? Is if I don't grasp, if I don't identify so much, then I feel much lighter. 
about being in the world. And to me, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Yes. Yeah, uh, related to happiness, does uh, Buddhism or your experience say something about playfulness in a loving way, really? Well, again, it depends in which tradition. Like, I would say, uh, you can know uh, which, if a person has been in what kind of retreat, by the way they look. And if they look a little, like sometimes I see friends of mine and they look really serious and they talk about suffering and I think, oh, they've done a monk's retreat, you know, in the Theravada tradition, you know. Or oh, they really kind of look like really kind of, ooh, kind of really like that. I think, oh, they've been doing Dzogchen. And um, so for this one, for the playfulness, I think it depends. Sometimes you get it with the Zen people, sometimes not. Because sometimes they can be very serious. Very serious, and sometimes not. But what I found, I had this wonderful moment long ago when I was a nun in Korea. And one of the things my teacher was asked to do was to do calligraphy. And then he would give them to people and sometimes it would be given to people who had been benefactors of the temple. And so Master Kuzan had this disciple who was uh, very good at getting money from people. But then he did, lo- he did lots of calligraphies from Master Kuzan. Mm-hmm. And so one day we are in the place, and, the, and then the fellow asked Master Kuzan to do a really good calligraphy, because that was a big, big, big donation. So he needed a really, really fantastic calligraphy. So the whole time Master Kuzan is doing the calligraphy, the guy is telling him what to do. You know, be careful. Ah, 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 you know, not too much ink. Ah. You know, so the whole time he's telling him what to do. And in the end, Master Kuzan signed with the name of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> So I think playfulness comes in many different guides. But yes. Okay? And maybe we stop here and then there is walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.